I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Troy Hunt. Troy is an internationally recognized cybersecurity researcher, speaker, blogger, and instructor. He's the author of many top-rated security courses for web developers on Pluralsight and is a Microsoft Regional Director and a six-time Microsoft MVP specializing in online security and cloud development. Prior to becoming an independent security consultant, Troy worked at Pfizer with the last seven years being responsible for application architecture in the Asia-Pacific region. This time spent in large corporate environments gave him huge exposure to all aspects of technology as well as the diverse cultures his role spanned. Many of the things he teaches in post-corporate life are based on these experiences, particularly as a result of working with a large number of outsourcing vendors across the globe. Troy is most famously known for creating the Have I Been Pwned website. It's a free service that aggregates data breaches and helps people establish if they've been impacted by malicious activity on the web. As well as being a useful service for the security community, Have I Been Pwned has given him an avenue to ship code that runs at scale on Microsoft's Azure Cloud platform. Troy has been featured in a number of articles with publications including Forbes, Time Magazine, Mashable, PC World, ZDNet, and Yahoo Tech. In this episode, we discuss teaching developer security, learning on your own, becoming an instructor, cybersecurity in enterprise organizations, budgeting for security, building a personal brand, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Troy, thanks for being on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Yeah, hey Doug, I am very good. I'm I'm down in Australia, and I'm always good when I'm down here. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a, a nice place to be. <laughs> beautiful, sunny Australia, right? Yeah, it, it is, and we are actually in the sunny part of Australia. We are we are literally in a city called the Gold Coast, which is just all beaches and sunshine, and uh, as awesome as it sounds, it is. Yeah, I'd say I, I did a similar. Uh, move recently too. I left the East Coast of the United States to go to uh, the Denver area of Colorado where they get 300 plus days of summer. No beaches, but lots of sun. So it's, you know, I love yeah. it. And but, you actually get uh, good snow and mountains there as well. Oh yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's 70 degrees today with uh, snow capped mountains. So you, it's, it's like a postcard. Nice. You can't lose. Yeah. But, uh, you know, definitely want to get in a little bit of your background, but before then, one of the things that caught my eye when I was kind of doing some research for you is I want to talk a little bit about, you, you have a, a class or workshop that you're giving soon uh, called Hack Yourself. And it's kind of about building up the defensive skills and software developers, which I thought was very interesting. How has this been uh, received within the developer community? Yeah, so the, the workshop is Hack Yourself First. And this is a workshop that's targeted at people building software. So predominantly developers, but I also get a bunch of people in there who are anything from DBAs to sysadmins to security folks to uh, QA people, testers. And I've done this workshop probably 20 or 30 times around the world in the last couple of years. 
and I've got uh, 10 almost back-to-back events to do in Europe over the summer. So that's oh, wow. going to be fun. That, that does get a little bit Groundhog Day, if I'm honest. Uh, and the, the, look, I mean, the way these re- are received was sort of a combination of, of shock and awe <laughs> by developers <laughs> because developers very frequently don't really sort of think deeply about security. I mean, they, they do things which they know uh, to be good security patterns. Sometimes they do them, <laughs> not always, which is why I have a job. Uh, but, you know, this is something that is not usually front of mind. So when they actually see security represented in the way that I do it in the workshops, it, it's just amazing to sort of see the lights come on and people get really, really engaged and involved in it. That's great. Do you, do you think that they're, it's not in the forefront of a lot of developers because they're not trained that way, you know, whatever it's, it's, it's quote unquote classically trained as a developer, but is it something that's not taught to a lot of developers to think about, you know, adding the security lifecycle into their development projects, or is it more about their creative mindset where they're trying to build and it's just, it's just so out there for them that they don't think of it that way? Look, I think it's a combination of factors. Uh, I mean, one of them in terms of classical training is that we know that traditional routes to becoming software professionals are uh, are really varied. Uh, I mean, for, for me as myself, I went to university, did computer science, learned very little about actual software development. Uh, certainly, I can't recall anything about security. I mean, this was 20 years ago, mind you, but, uh, you know, that just sort of never featured uh, into the training. And, and I hear from a lot of people these days as well that the university degrees they're doing just don't tend to have this sort of information. And people get very focused on on shipping products and don't think so much about so many of these ancillary behaviors of the application, such as security. Interesting. So is it is it something that you see, um, I guess, becoming more thought of? Is it something that we're, we're moving in the right direction, essentially? Well, it's certainly becoming a more topical issue. And I guess what I mean by that is that we're, we're all getting more exposure to it. So it seems that and, and inevitably, this was sort of part of the catalyst of me getting more involved as well. But over over the years, we've had just more and more exposure in the mainstream press uh, of security incidents. And, and what I mean by mainstream as well is that security is one of those aspects of building software that even my parents see, you know, like they will say, hey, I was watching the news the other day and there was this thing about Ashley Madison or whoever it was. Uh, and and they're sort of getting exposed to this aspect of technology uh, which, you know, so many other aspects of technology, like the latest fantastic JavaScript frameworks or, you know, who's doing what with Node. I mean, they're never going to see that. Right. <laughs> right. So security sort of gets airtime like few other aspects of software do. Yeah, it's definitely, and particularly with the uh, the increased amount of data breaches. And, and you certainly uh, had, had some kind of limelight on that as well. But kind of before we get to that, I mean, with your background, you said it, you went to school for you know, development and information um, systems, but was it was security part of your formal training then? How did you kind of end up being in security? So I never had any formal security training, uh, but, you know, to, to the same uh, effect, I guess, I never really had any formal software development training. And the things that I remember from university, and, and this was sort of, I was there in 95 through 97, so very, very early days of the web. 
but the training that I had back then was around here's Cobol. <laughs> you know, that's, right. that's, that's useless. Um, certainly useless for anything that that uh, most of us do today. Uh, I mean, there are a few things that stuck, like there was a bit of you know TSQL sort of training and that sort of stuff. But for the most part, it was it was pretty much a waste of my time, if I'm honest. Kept me entertained for a while. So with security, you know, security is is such a an ancillary part of what we do as software anyway. Insofar as we're, you know, we're, we're building things where we have to understand HTTP requests and responses and headers and bodies and what TCP packets are, you know, how they're constructed. You know, there's lots of different aspects that we're sort of very close to anyway with the way we build software. It's not hard to sort of make that tangential shift and say, well, look, I'm going to start. Yeah, perhaps first and foremost, uh, thinking about security and carving out a, a career there as opposed to just building stuff the whole time. Gotcha. And so you, you did end up working with Pfizer, which is obviously a very large uh, multinational company. And did you have kind of a traditional security role there with them? So I was with Pfizer for 14 years and that that felt like 40 years. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's move on from that. But uh, in terms of what I did there, I actually had uh, entirely software-based roles there or, or delivery-based roles. So I started there as a developer, originally doing uh, classic ASP, so sort of VB script, uh, and then .NET. And then there's this thing that happens in technology uh, and particularly when you're there in, in software roles, is that if you want your career to progress, you have to stop doing the thing that you're good at and go and do something else and instruct other people how to do the thing that you did well. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> right. it's a, I'm, I'm sure this resonates with many people listening, but it was an enormously sort of frustrating uh, nature of the industry. So I became uh, an architect. And to be honest, that's a bit of a, an amorphous term as well, because it certainly means different things to different people. But what that meant in Pfizer is I spent the last four or five years looking after how we did uh, all of our application architecture for the Asia Pacific region, uh, which is a, a pretty big chunk of the world in terms of, of where all the people are. So it's India, China, Japan, uh, Australia as well, obviously. Yeah. And that was all around how we're going to deliver solutions to uh, to a combination of internal business users and externally facing campaigns and all the other sorts of things that you imagine a, a very large healthcare company would do. Uh, and it, it meant, in Pfizer speak, basically managing the way vendors built software. And, and this was part of my frustration with the place. Everything was outsourced. So there was no sort of retention of of talent or in, intelligence, if you like. It would just go out to the lowest bidders in India and China and everywhere else. So a lot of my job was around coordinating how these folks were going to build software. And inevitably, when you outsource a lot of stuff to really cheap places, you get kind of predictable results. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I spent... A lot of time just reading through code, tearing my hair out because of the design decisions that were made. And and look, this pervades across everything from what we consider to be good software patterns for performance, scalability, usability, uh, even spelling words correctly. Uh, that's a hard challenge when you outsource to non-English speaking uh, places. So <laughs> amongst all of that as well was uh, obviously security issues. And you can imagine uh, for a global brand, you're going to be a, a target, number one. And when you think about some of the sorts of data that an organization like that might deal with, things like patient data, that's very, very sensitive information. 
So security was something that was that was a big issue, uh, and it was something that we had a, a particularly big challenge with, given the nature of the way the software was was being outsourced. But my role was was much broader than that. Security was one pillar within there, and it was sort of over the the last few years of of my tenure there, and I, I left two years ago, that I started to focus uh, significantly more on security, and that sort of led me to where I am now. In, in kind of looking back, when you look at you know, large enterprise organizations, a lot of times I hear things from, you know, maybe small organizations like, well, I don't have the resources that a large organization has, but are there certain resource constraints that are true there that there's just uh, some challenges or actually I would say like things that are, are maybe misunderstood about that, that there are actually still a lot of challenges in larger organizations that might not even scale down to smaller organizations. I'm really cautious when someone says we don't have the money for security and, and they, they put it in that very sort of absolute blanket way because the reality of it is there are many, many shades of, of what can be done. And when we look at the way most applications these days are being compromised, they're being broken into through flaws which would not have cost anything to avoid in the first place. Uh, so, for example, all the SQL injection risks we see, it doesn't cost you any more money to build software that is not subject to a SQL injection risk than what it does software that's vulnerable. You know, if, if you parameterize your queries, you're, you're mostly good. You know, you're almost certainly good. And that doesn't cost money, right? That's just the way you structure the code. And, and the difference between those two things is having competent people. Now, you might argue that, well, we'd actually like to have incompetent people because it's cheaper, but that's a bit of a slippery slope <laughs> once you start heading that way. So a lot of security is available for free if people know how to use it. Now, there's a lot of other stuff that costs money. There are a lot of vendors out there that would very gladly take your money to put their security thing in your application. <laughs> but to a degree here, we're kind of, you know, sort of layering something over the top in in the hope of preventing the the crud that is underneath actually floating to the surface. <laughs> so right. I'm a bit I'm a bit wary about those sorts of approaches. I think that's probably misdirected funds a lot of the time. Oh yeah, I mean, often you see people picking out the the colors and patterns of their curtains when they don't even have the windows put in yet. You know, it's like they, it's the order in which things are done become the challenge and, and trying to make sure you capitalize on your investments and picking the right resources. And then instead of going out and buying the next next gen thing. Well, you know, this is one of the reasons why I like the training so much. I mean, not only because I enjoy the interaction and the people facing, but because it is such an easy thing to sell. Because when I go in there and I train, you know, usually about 30 people in a workshop, it's it's the it's all these people that come along, they spend two days, uh, they pick up all this information. And yeah, frankly, the biggest cost of the organization is the 30 people for two days ain't cheap. And they got to take, you know, two days out of their time to go and learn this stuff. But then they go away and they build application after application for years, possibly decades, some of this stuff's going to stick with them. And they reapply it over and over and over again. And so many times that the crossroads between here's how to do something well and here's how to leave yourself completely open to total ponage <laughs> is really just one line of code, even just one little configuration at times. And it doesn't take much to get people on the right path with that. Right. And speaking of, uh, of ponage, I mean, you've certainly gotten your name out there with Have I Been Pwned? And how did that project kind of come about? And maybe you can kind of explain to the listeners a little bit what it is for those that are kind of uh, uninitiated. 
So in late 2013, I was doing a lot of analysis of data breaches and I was looking for, for things like patterns uh, across separate incidents. So I'd look for things like uh, how prevalent is password reuse, you know, or, or another interesting one is how much information can we build up about a person by pulling different attributes from different data breaches. And of, of course, you'd, you'd find all sorts of the, the kind of worrying things that you'd expect you'd find. Yes, people reuse a lot of passwords and, you know, yes, we get very rich pictures of ourselves uh, via all these incidents. And as I was doing that, I thought, hey, what would be cool is if there was a way of actually seeing where you're exposed because my theory was that most people didn't know just how extensive their exposure has been. And this is a theory which has been uh, proven to be right uh, by virtue of the number of people that now actually go and use this service. So I stood it up late 2013 predominantly with the Adobe data breach uh, and a couple of others. I think I think Adobe alone was about 152 million. Uh, and I thought at the time, we're never going to see anything this big again. I was wrong about that. <laughs> but there was that. And there are a few others, about 155 million records in there. And what I did is I aggregated it all into a service and went, okay, so you go to haveibeenpwned.com, put in your email address, and it will tell you where you've been exposed. And then over time, that's grown now to, as of the time of recording, 208 data breaches of uh, 2.6 billion different records. And you go along to this site, you plug your email address in, it comes back in a few milliseconds and says, here's where we found you. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very, uh, it's sometimes a scary um, thing that when you tell people, hey, you know, just check this out even with your Gmail and they find out, oh, oh wow, I've had a... Uh, yeah, I've used my account's been probably compromised in a lot of different areas and you start having that discussion. Now, did you use that password on multiple sites and their, their face kind of turns white when they realize, yeah, they, they haven't probably followed best practices. Um, but we, So where, where do you actually get the data dumps from? Is it from just dark web uh, resources? Is it, is it a manual process or something you can actually automate? It's a bit of a combination. So these days, most of the data comes to me by people who support the project. So often I will have multiple different incidents in one day sent to me by a variety of different people who uh, are either crawling around the web themselves looking for exposed data. Uh, and, and in many cases, particularly over, I'd say, the last six months, we've seen lots of cases of exposed data by way of things like, uh, hey, we've got a database backup or a set of database backups sitting in a, a publicly accessible uh, path with directory listing enabled. You know, and this, right. this is not little companies. This is organizations like Capgemini, right? Who have 180,000 people worldwide and revenues of 11 billion euro a year. Uh, and by the way, here's all of the Michael Page Recruitment's company's data for the, for the world just dumped here in a directory because convenience, I assume. Uh, so... Often people will stumble across that sort of thing and they'll they'll send me uh, data. And there's, of course, there's a pretty serious question here about whether they should actually be downloading that data or not. It's, it's probably not really a question. They shouldn't be, but, you know, many people sort of find things and, and they grab it. There's also a really active data breach trading scene. And there are a lot of people of various shades of grey that collect this data and exchange it with each other. And in some cases, they're, they're monetizing it. They're selling it to people. Uh, in other cases, they are literally just collectors building up their own stash of data because, hey, save all the things. And there are a number of people within those circles that when they see a piece of interesting data from an interesting breach, they send it to me. Hmm. What's the, uh, so who, which has the, been the largest data dump you received so far as far as number of records? 
So it depends on how you cut it. So that the largest one in terms of a, a breach in the traditional sense is MySpace, five or well, actually 359 million accounts uh, in that MySpace breach. And also when I say accounts, I'm talking about unique email addresses. Uh, and, and often that number is lower than the press reports in terms of records because, well, hey, for whatever reason, there's multiple email addresses that are the same or there's there's records with no email. So 359 million out of uh, MySpace. The largest uh, piece of data I've loaded is, is actually from a spam list. So I, I introduced a concept uh, a few months ago, which is if you've appeared in a, a list that's being sold for spam purposes, and there's a lot of those around, I've got a categorization now where I can load that into the system. And then when people search for it, it says, look, here's what it is. It's a spam list. It's not necessarily a system that's been breached. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a list that someone's selling your data on. So the largest one I've got there is one called River City Media. And River City Media is 393 million records. Oh, wow. Uh, and and this, this, is, this is why we all get so much spam, right? Because we're on lists like this, which get sold around and aggregated from various places. And yeah, that's, uh, that's the biggest one in there at the moment. Do you think we've seen the worst of it? Or at this point, do you, <laughs> do you just, just, anything's fair game at this point where you might even think there will be larger ones. It was like we got to the end of 2015. Everyone's going, oh, 2015 is the year of the data breach. This is this is unprecedented. This is terrible. It's like, no, you haven't seen anything yet. Because <laughs> you know, we got into 2016, and I'm, I'm like literally looking at my screen now with the list of the top 10. And the stuff that came out in 2016 that is in the, the top 10 largest breaches I've got is MySpace, 359 we just mentioned, LinkedIn at 164 million. Uh, we had Dropbox at 68 million. We had Tumblr at 65 million. And all of these just came out last year. And, and that is just an insanely large amount of data. And of course, there's the Yahoo stuff, which I have never seen. Uh, lots of people say they've got it. Lots of people say lots of things. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that was allegedly half a billion records from some state-sponsored actor and, you know, Yahoo to come out and say that. And then like a month later, they're like, oh, yeah. And also there was another one that was like a billion records. Uh, so if you categorize those into the 2016 year as well, it's it, it just looks absolutely atrocious. And the only sort of saving grace there is that that's data, which certainly isn't circulating very broadly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you've, you've actually done this as a free service. Why, why did you decide to do it free as opposed to commercializing it? It was fun. <laughs> I mean, in, in all, and that was pretty much the original thinking process. In fact, uh, I remember I was, I was still at Pfizer when I started this and I was traveling. I was in the Philippines and I had spare time on the plane and in the hotel. And I thought, oh, this would be kind of cool. Like, let's do this. And uh, I guess a, a sort of a more serious answer to your question is that in part, it, it's fun to build stuff. And as a developer at heart, that's that's what I enjoy. I like constructing things. Uh, now, part of it was that it could meet this requirement. There was a, a, a practical value in building the service. Part of it also was that it gave me an opportunity to use Microsoft's Azure Cloud uh, in anger, for want of a better term. <laughs> uh, and I was starting to do a lot of work with Azure. And look, I mean, I really love a lot of what the cloud can do for us today. And I wanted to build something on it. So I thought this would be good. Now, what I didn't realize at the time when I built it, initially I went, oh, this would be good because there's like 154 million records and I can use table storage and I can sort of talk about these other storage constructs. 
And that was cool. The bit I didn't realize was that I I did not foresee the popularity of it and the fact that it would actually give me uh, personally a heap of experience, but also a heap of stuff to write about in terms of scale and performance. Mm -hmm. So this is a service where on average these days, I'm even going to pull up my stats so I get my figures right because it's always changing. But normally I'm seeing somewhere around the order of tens of thousands uh, of people, unique people, every single day that come via this service. Uh, so if I look, let me have a look, the last month. So the last month has seen 60 million requests. Uh, and then in terms of unique visitors, uh, 913,000 unique visitors over the last month. So about 30,000 plus people a day, unique people. Uh, which is cool. And, you know, that that has some interesting scale challenges because what tends to happen is as much as, you know, 913 is a pretty normal month, after something like Ashley Madison or Dropbox, I'll see that in a day. And, and that becomes really interesting then. Like how do you support a million people coming to your site in a day, searching through billions of records without just continuously throwing money at the problem? because I do run it as a free service for anyone that wants to come along and use it. So I'm really cost conscious. So it's given me an enormous amount of material. In fact, even just a few hours ago, I did a webinar uh, for Cloudflare where I was talking about some of their features such as uh, rate limiting and caching and firewalls mm -hmm. because that's that's an area where I've been able to gain a lot of experience by running this service. So it's kind of opened all these other interesting doors for me uh, and exposed me to other things just by virtue of putting the service out there and, and giving it to people to use for free. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you've also provided some some level of API hook. So I'm assuming some people are using it actually commercially where they're they're figuring out some way to, to make it a service uh, for their customers or for their users. Yeah, and in fact, I do have commercial offerings there as well. And you, you might note that none of those are on the website. It's not something that I outwardly promote. But there are a number of organizations that have come along and said, look, we would really like to be able to access data uh, predominantly about our customers and our employees to use in good ways. And I, I have written about some of these in the past. I wrote about uh, My Life, the identity provider, said, look, uh, part of what our customers are paying us for is to look for their exposure uh, on the dark web, for want of a better term. Uh, consumer speak always thinks everything's the dark web if it's nasty stuff I've learned. <laughs> Which is interesting. Uh, but, you know, they wanted to do that. And uh, arguably, exposure and data breaches is really relevant information that an identity theft provider or someone monitoring your online exposure uh, can do good things with. So I set forth a bunch of conditions for, for anyone that uses it commercially, which, which really boils down to you're only going to look for data when people actually expect you to. So I don't want anyone popping up one day going, hey, Troy, why did you give this company my data when, you know, you never should have? So... I'm really cautious about that. Uh, any organization that uses it, I, I literally have verbal conversations with. I understand what they do. We work together. Uh, they're, they're nice sort of, uh, I guess, symbiotic relationships where, where I can earn a bit of money out of the thing. And and they can, uh, they can sort of support their business, but probably more importantly, help people understand their exposure on the web. That's great. Whether that be dark or not. <laughs> yeah, Payspin is not a not the dark web. I don't think people realize you can just <laughs> go find that stuff it's, out there. The, the, the funny thing is, and I, I often show this in, in talks that are more consumer-facing, I go, let me show you the dark web. Here's the Tor browser. There's the dark web. Just look, looks just like the other web. <laughs> it's just got a funny – like that is it. Like that's about the extent of the story. It's got an uh, or onion. You, you, go to one, <laughs> you go to one of those web-to-tour uh, sort of reverse proxies and it's like, well – 
it's just your normal Chrome browser looking at a website. Yeah. So if, if you were kind of giving an advice to a company that is collecting and storing data, you know, whether it's PCI, PII, health, or any really kind of any sensitive data, what advice would you give them to not end up as part of a large data dump? That's a good question. And I'm actually preparing to write uh, a course on GDPR at the moment, which are these sort of new EU data regulations that will come into effect next year that are very focused on protecting individuals' uh, information. And, and one of the, the sort of interesting things that they uh, come back to quite a bit is one of these sort of age-old infosec principles, which is really, really basic, but smart, which is just don't collect stuff you don't need. <laughs> you know, like you probably don't need to store someone's birth date and their gender and their mother's maiden name in order them f for them to comment on a forum. And, and every time I say this, someone pops up and says, oh, yeah, but copper in the US, got to make sure they're 13. You don't need to store their birth date in order to make sure they're 13. Mm -hmm. You say, are you 13? <laughs> if yes, then continue. If no, and every single time I've heard a rebuttal, and, oh, yeah, we're meant to store. No, you're not. You know, like storing people's birth dates is just ridiculous. And if you really want to say happy birthday to them, just store the day and the month. Um, but probably don't even do that. So, you know, not storing information you don't need is, is really important. Uh, another thing that comes up in GDPR is, is recognizing once data is stale and you no longer need it. So we have this propensity, particularly as the cost of storage has become so low, to just keep every single piece of information we can. Because if we keep everything and we need it five years, 10 years from now, we'll, we'll have it. But of course, that then leaves you exposed for that period of time too, at, at least insofar as if you have an incident, there's a chance you may lose that data. Uh, if you don't have that data, then there's a 100% chance you won't lose it. So that is just really practical, uh, common sense advice. And of, of course, extending that, and this goes back to the earlier discussion, is uh, training people. You know, if you're going to have people building systems, maintaining systems, go and get them some dedicated security training. And speaking of training, you also do stuff for uh, Pluralsight. How did that kind of come about and what are some of the courses that you've developed for them? Yeah, good question. Very good timing. There's a, a big Pluralsight week for me at the moment. <laughs> so for those of you that don't know, Pluralsight is a provider of, of online training courses. They've been around for more than a decade now. They're a billion dollar plus organization, Salt Lake City based and they've got over 5,000 online courses, uh, predominantly in the technology space, predominantly within building software, but some sysadmin stuff as well. And what they do is they have people like myself that are prominent in various areas of technology write courses and then record them. So uh, it, it is literally me sitting down going, I'll give you an example. In a few hours, I'm gonna have a, a course called uh, What Every Developer Must Know About HTTPS Go Live. So I went to them and said, look, I really think we need this course. Uh, I wrote uh, an outline, a proposal, and they said, yep, this looks like a good idea. I write the entire course. I record it. Uh, it's just audio, no, no video of me, but it's a screencast. And then I go through and I edit it and I produce it and I serve it up on a silver platter. Very importantly, they go through and review the whole thing end to end as well. So a peer goes through and they'll say everything from that's technically incorrect to I saw your mouse uh, cursor flash on the screen for 500 milliseconds here. You need to clean that up. So quality control is really good. Uh, and I've, in fact, when that course goes live today, that and another one this week that will be my uh, 30th uh, courses for Plural Site. 
So that's something that I have spent a lot of time doing because it's a really great way of, of reaching a really broad audience. I was able to start writing these courses while I still had my full-time job at Pfizer. Uh, and in fact, when I left Pfizer, this this was what I did. It, it paid a lot more money than my my normal sort of corporate-y, you know, fairly senior role there. So Pluralsight has been very good to me. That's great. And so when you develop courses, you know, there's obviously there's a lot of different training out there from SANS and other courses uh, globally. What do you try to do to make your courses maybe stand out or be a little bit different? Well, one of the things that I've sort of, I guess, refined over time is is what is the, the niche that I fit into. And it, it's interesting looking at some of the feedback that comes back from people, both good and bad, uh, about the content that I create. There are, uh, I'll start with the bad, there are a number of sort of diehard security folks out there that go, well, this is crap. It's too basic. It's too dumb. You know, like this is, you're not sort of hand rolling your your own sort of hardcore hacking tools and you're not living, living in Kali and, and everything else. And I, I sort of have to go to, well, hang on a second. Like you, you got to remember context, right? So who is this information targeted to? And the, the, the niche that I've decided to fill here with everything from my, my talks to my in-person workshops to online training is security education for developers. Uh, so that's what I focus on. So when I do things like my training, I, I don't sort of walk in there with a swag full of different tools. It's not like, okay, everyone start running Burp and all this other stuff that they've never seen before. We live in the browser and we live in tools like uh, Fiddler, which is an HTTP proxy which developers use all the time. So my my content is very targeted at helping developers understand security concepts, which you know, right off the bat sort of sets it apart from a lot of other training. Uh, and then I try to do things in a sort of as engaging way as possible because security is something which can become very bland and very dull. And look, certainly I've looked at a lot of other training over the years as I've prepared my own. And, and a lot of it just, it really does put you to sleep or it is just textbook, academic, you know, boring stuff. So I do a lot of stuff like uh, when I do uh, in-person presentations, I'll do things like use a Wi-Fi pineapple and show people their Wi-Fi networks and, you know, things that are impactful. When I do courses, I, I do a lot of referring back to industry precedents and I, I show how these attacks worked. I show, you know, what is actually happening out there in the industry. And I, I try wherever possible to sort of put this in a context which is consumable for the audience I'm speaking to. No, that's good. I mean, it's it's the big thing about, as you said, kind of knowing your audience so they actually absorb it. Uh, I've definitely been in those classes where I can see, um, and it, it sometimes it's the attendees is too. They might pick a course just to fill a compliance need or some something for their job, but really are not there for the uh, uh, for the content, so, so so to speak. And really, I think from from what I've seen is it becomes a two way street. You know, it needs a give and take from both the audience and the giver of the, of the information. Well, I think for for everyone, and particularly if you're listening to this and you think about doing training as well, you've really sort of got to think about how you're going to keep this stuff engaging, you know, like how are you going to, how are you going to make this a little bit of a show? Um, and, and I guess what I mean by that is that people want to have sort of highs and lows, you know, there's got to be times where you can joke and have fun. There's got to be times where it's serious. They want to go through a little bit of an emotional roller coaster of being sad about some things and excited about other things. And it's, it, it's interesting when you look at the way 
really good speakers and presenters uh, sort of conduct themselves that this is what happens, right? You go through this these sort of peaks and troughs of emotion and and excitement, uh, and that's that's really important. And it sort of takes a long time and a lot of practice to to to, to get it where you want it to be. And I, I certainly continue to refine it every single time I do a talk as well. Right. Well, that's another thing I noticed. You, you obviously give a lot of presentations. You now have a, a YouTube channel, a YouTube channel where you're doing weekly updates. But there's it seems to be a trend with with Troy is to give back a lot to the kind of community. Why why spend so much time kind of almost giving things away as far as information and your time? Yeah, look, there's a really interesting balance to be struck here, and for, for the sake of context, I probably went. So I started blogging almost eight years ago, uh, and it probably took me, I would say, uh, probably about four years before I earned a cent <laughs> from all of the uh, blogging and speaking and you know, guest blog posts and podcasts and user groups and everything. And the, the reason why is that you, you sort of you need something that you can sell. Uh, and, and if you're just sort of, look, I'm some random person you've never heard of, let me do something for you. If you can sell anything at all, it's not going to be for very much money. And what I've found is that there's a huge amount of value in sort of creating your personal brand and identity. In fact, that's one of the Pluralsight courses that went out just last week was about creating brand and identity. Because once you do start to become recognized for the things you do, then you start to have a huge number of other options available to you. And the, the chicken and egg problem here is, well, how much time do I spend basically doing stuff for free so that I might then have this opportunity to commercialize that later on? Uh, and to be fair as well, it's not that I'm doing all this because I want to make money out of it. I, I genuinely love and enjoy what I'm doing. And I, I hope that comes across, particularly when, when people hear me speak. Uh, but this is sort of complementary stuff. So, you know, these days I spend a lot of time uh, blogging, uh, which indirectly pays me money because I have sponsorship. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is just about every single conference talk I do, and this is all over the world, I don't earn a cent from. Uh, so I don't get paid uh, for anything other than the odd keynote here and there. And it is all about sort of a combination of, of exposure, uh, opportunities to actually get face-to-face -face with people so I don't go crazy sitting at home alone the whole time. <laughs> and, and to a degree that the long play of, of building brand and industry recognition so that you have other options available to you in the future. So if you're giving advice to that, maybe a listener or somebody that's saying, you know, how do I get started? What do I do? I, I can't do it. What would that um, advice be to them? Well, the, the easy advice now is go and watch my Pluralsight course <laughs> from last week. I, I literally, I'm just looking at the title of it now. Uh, Crafting a Brand for Growth and Prosperity. And I, I did this. This is actually what they call a play-by-play -play course where myself uh, and another author sit down and, and have a discussion. And, and they do actually video this one and then show snippets of the screen. And I did this with a, a friend of mine who's going through a similar journey uh, of sort of creating a, a public profile uh, and we talk about a lot of stuff that ranges from simple things like, you know, it's it's easy to go out there and, and create a blog uh, or to, if you don't want to do that, just go and reply to Q&A on, say, the Security Stack Exchange site. Uh, you know, there's lots of things you can do to increase your exposure. Uh, and in fact, the very first blog post I ever wrote, and this would have been about September 2009, was something along the lines of uh, why online identities are a smart career move. And I had been hiring people at Pfizer at the time and someone had come along and they go, 
uh, hey, I want a job as, say, an ASP.NET developer. Here's my CV. I'm awesome. And I go, okay, that's, of course you're going to say you're awesome. <laughs> you know, there's no surprise. Let me Google you and see if I can find things that you've done that convince me you're awesome. And I was astounded by how hard it was to find anything on a lot of these people. And I'm sort of saying to them, like, when you get stuck, do you ask a question on Stack Overflow? Well, if yes, then I can see the sorts of things that you get stuck on. And it's fine to be stuck on stuff. Sure. I just want to know that people know how to, to ask for help. Then no, they're not anywhere there. All right. Well, have you have you put any code out there? Are you on you know GitHub or anything like that? No, nothing like that. Uh, and even so much as just having like a profile photo on a LinkedIn profile, which might have some endorsements or some history of what they've done. And I was finding nothing on a lot of these people. And my theory at the time was that if you actually did have independently verifiable artifacts about what you've been doing in life that demonstrate that you are actually an active player in this community and you're doing stuff and you're asking questions and getting involved, that would lead to more opportunities. And and those opportunities may simply mean you get a better job offer or you, you have a greater chance than the other candidate of landing the role that you're looking at. Uh, I, I didn't really think far enough ahead to to consider that they'd give me the opportunities that I have today, but that's kind of where it started. And first of a blog post of a wrote. So that's actually turned out to be very true. Well, it sounds like you also have to be kind of patient too, that there's no uh, overnight success in building your brand identity. A lot of stuff had to line up. So that certainly the patience side of things, but I, I'm not sure that I ever felt particularly impatient either because I enjoyed what I was doing when I did it. But one of the other things that's that's been very important is is having a supportive wife as well. And if you <laughs> if your partner doesn't support what you're doing and you know doesn't give you the the time to be able to do it, maybe not necessarily to the extent that I did, which was you know lots of nights and weekends and and it still is to be honest. Uh, I, I would I would take <clears throat> I'd take annual leave in order to travel to conferences because uh, Pfizer basically wouldn't give me any more than a couple of days off a year to, to go to an event. So, you know, I would sort of draw down on my private time in order to build this this public identity. And look, I mean, it's, it's well and truly paid off now, but it, it took a lot of time to get to that point. Yeah, and I I, <laughs> I, I know that journey. And yeah, the patient wife uh, and supportive wife is always a, a big help. Uh, that's as my wife, as I'm recording this, is you know taking care of our six year old who's running around the house with way too much energy right now. So I, <laughs> <laughs> you know you know the feeling then. You know the, the feeling. feeling. Well, Troy, I, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today to kind of talk about your journey and where you are. But where, where can people find you? Let's get some plugs out there for you so people can find what you have done. Well, TroyHunt.com is, is probably the most logical start. And of course, we spoke about Have I Been Pwned, which you can either figure out how to spell or you can Google and it will lead you there. It's it's very well uh, SEO'd after the amount of press it's had. So you'll find that there. Uh, and I'm on Twitter as Troy Hunt, So I'm normally pretty active on Twitter. And if, if you want to connect with me there, you know, that's, uh, that's a great place to do it. Well, great. I'll make sure I put all that uh, information in the show notes. But if uh, there's anything else, please you know, please let us know. But this was a great, great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Doug. All right, Troy. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks, we'll talk soon.